0: Hopefully I'm going to pick up some of the threads from the previous evening's talks and again go around and let's try and flesh these out a little bit further. One of the things that you really have to ask yourself the question, I say you, we, we have to ask ourselves the question about is whether we desire freedom from the known from what is familiar to us, to make our journey into unknown regions. The familiar is all too familiar. In fact, the familiar in its root forms in Buddhist thought really are three. Most of you will know them under English names. I'll just give you the Pali just for a second. Loba, Dosa, Moha which is desire, aversion, and delusion. And all of the psychology that arises out of those three things, out of desire, aversion, and delusion. And stepping out into the unknown region, what do we mean by stepping out into the unknown? Perhaps it's not totally unknown. Unfamiliar is probably a better word for it. And the unfamiliar, in a way, I mentioned last night, not totally unfamiliar, because as I was saying, that you know, these things arise in our lives, they are present in our lives, but to run into this slightly unknown, unfamiliar topography, this unknown landscape, to run through the fields of meta, to dip our toes in the lake of compassion, and to... Visit the hidden valleys of joy occasionally. This is the unknown landscape to which, in a sense, you have to be brave enough to want to enter. And it does need a degree of courage because to let go of what is familiar is often very scary, even if the unfamiliar makes you miserable the unfamiliar I should say the unfamiliar shouldn't make you miserable it's the familiar that makes you miserable to move from that familiarity of things which are based on greed desire, aversion delusion is to move away from that which is deeply, deeply familiar and we keep circling around again and again and again and again and again it has a name which I'm sure many, many of you are familiar with and in Buddhist terms it's called Sangsara and really it should have an I-N-G at the end of it because it's a way of being. It's not a place, it's not a thing, it's a way of being. The word is a verb form in the original language so it's really sangsara this is what we're doing has many many connotations the actual word in the original language which I think helps to bring it to life one is going round in circles literally you can hear that in just what I've been saying in the familiar you go round and round and round in it um, suffering from these feelings of deja vu of making the same mistakes being in the same place or similar places never quite freeing yourself from it it also has a connotation of creating ruts that you run down as well. So, in a way, this samsaric experience that we're undergoing, which is our familiar world, when I gave you that quotation, which I pinned up on the board, when I gave you that quotation, when will we reach the end of the world? Will we ever reach it by walking to the end of the world? And the Buddha is saying, no. You know, we only bring an end to the world by understanding what's going on in this fathom-long body, as he puts it, this fathom-long carcass. That world of which he speaks is the Sangsaric world, it's no other. It's not you know, the world as we understand it. It's the world which is characterised by a feeling tone. And I spoke about that feeling tone last night, so as you hear... What I'm saying, I'm picking up on many of the things and just, again, beginning to expand them a little bit from what I was saying last night. The characteristic feeling tone of sangsaric experience, of course, is dissatisfaction. It should be familiar to you now. Again, this is becoming familiar because I said it last night. Dissatisfaction is the tone which we experience again and again and again. We particularly experience, because, experience it because, in a way, sangsaric life, this floating around the familiar, offers no satisfaction, hence the reason why it's often translated as unsatisfactoriness. The Buddha likens, in a wonderful simile, he likens this experience of looking for satisfaction in sangsara to a dog sitting outside of a butcher's. And what the butcher does is he hands the dog a bone which is completely stripped of flesh and merely has a little bit of blood on it. And the dog gnaws it again and again and again and again and of course gets no nutrition from it whatsoever. And in a way, that is... A simile for our experience, it's like this, that we gnaw on sangsaric experience again and again and again and again. We repeat in an attempt to recover something which isn't there in the first place. You know, the kind of activities that we often engage in, now, Really, I'm giving you big generalizations so please examine it in terms of your own experience because some of it might not fit and some of it might but we keep visiting the familiar doing the same things again and again and again this is the cycle of repetition that I've spoken about which characterizes Sangsaric experience in a way it's still searching for the sweet chili not quite believing that the things we do don't provide any degree of lasting satisfaction. The whole impetus behind materialism, in a way, is that. You know, obviously, there is needs and wants that can be satisfied, and things that we do need, and a lot of the world, in certain areas of the world, in developing countries, people don't have enough material you know, stuff to keep them supported in their lives now we in the western world are not like that we're not in that position we have you know, even some of the poorest families in the west often have more than enough yet we go on accumulating and accumulating how often do we discard things you know, I can't possibly give this to you because I don't even like it myself it's almost that. You can't even give things away. It's very difficult for us to discard things. So we hold on, we cling with attachment to the things that we don't really require. And so we, in a way, create our own prisons. We create our prisons, you know, and a bit like a large cat imprisoned in a zoo. With bars around it, we catch glimpses of freedom every so often through the bars. But unlike the big cat who's in a zoo, we create our own bars. Yeah. The animal doesn't create its own bars. We do. And we create these bars by keep revisiting the same places again and again and again. And, okay, this sound might sound theoretical, but really I'm trying to get you to see is you have to examine this in terms of your own life what is it within our own lives that we somehow just do not believe that there isn't some happiness or satisfaction residing in it and we just don't get it that uh, we are almost bound to fall and fail in our attention to, to, to derive some kind of nutrition in terms of happiness or peace or contentment or that from This object, whatever it might be. It might be the constant activity that we engage in, the mistaking of doing for being, or the big one that goes on, and this is the other side really, the doing is a large one, particularly of our contemporary societies, but the mistaking of the having for being. I am what I do, or I am what I have. It's interesting, of course, for those of you who perhaps have learnt other languages, that these are the first two verbs you learn, usually in any other language, to have and to be. And there's a confusion going on here, often, in this relationship between having, being, doing, being. So we lose ourselves in activities. We associate ourselves with what we have. What we have, of course, is transient. What we do is transient as well. No matter what your profession is, even if you're at the highest or the lowest part of your profession or the job that you do, at some point you will have to cease doing it. And so much identity is invested in what particular role you have it might be a profession it might be as mother, father, child whatever it is and these change and they don't remain the same it might be in the constant round of activity that we try to establish our identity in the constant doing almost the hallmark of being somebody is to have a full diary Because I'm doing continuously. Jenny's smiling because she knows what my diary is like. (laughs) Which is rather full. (laughs) I don't take any pride in it, I must say. But we can create our identities through this. And we don't quite believe why we are still feeling senses of dissatisfaction when I'm doing a lot or when I have most of the things that I want and still to continue to accumulate. In the doing there might be visiting patterns of entertainment and pleasure and all of the things that we have. I always remember a wonderful quote from Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, he wrote in his diary one day, and this is in his personal journal, in his diary, he said, I went to a party tonight. I was the life and soul of the party. Witticisms dropped from my lips. Everybody was basically salivating at what he had to say. He said, I went home and wanted to shoot myself. <laughs> you know, it's, there is still an emptiness that's contained within a lot of this. Now, unless you think I'm trying to make you ter- well, terribly miserable, I'm not. <laughs> it's nothing about that at all. It's just to have a realistic look at what's going on and what really will provide this nutrition, this satisfaction, and what will not provide this satisfaction. In Buddhist terms, from this viewpoint, um, the Sangsaric world just does not provide it. It cannot provide it. The patterns and cycles of repetition will not provide it. No matter how many times we do things, we will not find anything lasting and sustaining within it. Now, why I'm saying this is not depressive is because there is pleasure within that. There is often pleasure. And the Buddha doesn't deny there is pleasurable activity. And that... We get fun out of these pleasurable activities a lot of the time. But he's saying, don't invest what is merely pleasurable with something it doesn't really possess, which is lasting satisfaction. So take pleasure in it, take pleasure in what it is, which is transient, that it's fleeting. And that can be extremely joyful. There is no doubt about that. We can take great joy in our pleasures as long as we don't attempt to arrest them to stultify them, to hold on to them. But the problem is of course, and we see this and this is why I'm in a sense telling you this story, we see this in our mental continuum the attempt to grasp after that which we like that which we find pleasurable that arises for us, an attempt to evade and run away that which is unpleasurable. Even the psychoanalyst Freud, when he talked about something in his psychology called the pleasure principle, which was actually more about the avoidance of what you disliked than it ever was about anything you liked. So it was more about running away from things, trying to avoid them, rather than any real pleasure. So we're caught in this push-pull in our lives, being pushed and pulled between these two opposite poles of attraction and aversion. Does that sound familiar? Because I started off with loba, dosa, moha. Loba, desire. And dosa, aversion. Sometimes it's even translated as hatred. And if you like this whole genealogical tree which descends out of dosa, which is this aversion, ill will, dislike, irritation. All of these things are arising out of dosa. They're all arising out of aversion that we have. So we're pushed and pulled in our lives. Now, I don't know whether it has any resonances with you. This feeling of being pushed and pulled throughout life simply by our attractions and our repulsions, moving from pillar to post all the time, with no lasting satisfaction, that life becomes an endless, in a sense, quest to avoid that which is unpleasurable and to seek out that which is pleasurable. A question even in saying this to you this evening, always arises in my mind, when I see this in terms of my own activities, when I'm just trying to avoid something and when I'm just trying to grab hold of it because it's pleasurable, is that there is a great lack of freedom in it. There is no freeing. There's no sense of spaciousness and very little sense of freedom within it at all. The way, perhaps I would put it, that is, is simply reactiveness. We react to life and the vicissitudes of life, the exigencies of it, that which is thrown at us, just in very basic terms, you know, whether it be pleasure or whether it be the lack of it. we react rather than respond to it. And so that becomes the dominant feature of the known, is reactiveness. And when we look, for example, at some of the psychological elements that arise out of desire, out of aversion, and obviously deeply, deeply rooted in delusion, is that all of these patterns tend to be reactive. They don't tend to be responsive. And if I was to give you some characterization of the difference between the two, between reactivity and genuine responsiveness, is the one has little freedom in it, reactiveness, and the other responsiveness has a freedom to it has an element of genuinely being with a situation, no matter what it might be, and in a sense responding to it. It becomes responsiveness. It can be even responsibility, in the sense of our ability to respond. Now, no more so is that obvious than in the sphere of human ethical relationships or unethical relationships. Going back to something I said last night, and in a way what I'm doing, circling around, trying to give you a picture before I go back to some, again, the main themes of what this week is about. Because until you, in a sense, have a grasp, a vision of that main picture, it's quite difficult to see, in a way, how, for example... These great virtues, the field, the lake, the valley, as I'm kind of referring to them metaphorically, of affection, compassion and joy, fit into this picture and how they can become genuinely responsive. The first thing to remind you of is something I said last night. And that was, of course, that the psychological elements which are arising out of the negative roots, the three that I've spoken about, loba, dosa, moha, of greed, hatred and delusion in their normal translations, all of these senses are a rupturing of our relationship with what is. They're rupturing of our relationship often with other human beings. I say often, nearly always are they a rupturing of it. They are linked, they are tethered deeply, deeply to a notion which I'll explore. Perhaps I'll touch on it this evening and then go on to explore it further on in the week. They're deeply linked and deeply bound and tethered to the notion of some fixity of ego or self within us. Anger, for example, and I think we see this clearly in many of the locutions we have in English, which is the blindness of anger. Anger makes you see red. We even talk about other aspects. Let's take some of the other aversive aspects, like jealousy, the green monster of jealousy, the green-eyed monster. All these locutions, I think, point to something which I would refer to more technically as a kind of cognitive dissonance. We are actually separated distance from others when we're in these states. So is anger and this is really a question for you to examine, to think about is anger really about the other or is it about you? Anger appears to be tied Directly to a self. As do most of these other components. So, anger is arising obviously as a psychological component and condition of aversion. So is irritation. All of these cut us off, distanced us. From other human beings. We literally do not see them in that moment. Hence the reason you know, for these locutions, I say, which are very indicative. They show us a lot. They show us that anger is blind. When, I, when I'm suffering from this blindness of anger, I can almost see anything and do anything in those cases. And I'm talking obviously about the extreme condition. People do and say, things which they much, much later regret. And of course what happens in our ordinary life situations, I'm sure most of us have been there, I don't know about you, but I certainly have, is when somebody is angry with me, I've often acted angrily towards them as well. As if you can cure anger or hatred with anger. There is retaliation, vengeance written into this. Yeah, the attempt to quell the other in some way. It becomes a clash of egos. Yeah. And most of our negative psychologies arising out of these three, what are called unwholesome roots often called Three Fires. In one very, very famous talk that the Buddha gave, which is in the collection on discipline in the Pali Canon, the Buddha says, everything is burning. Everything is burning with the fires of greed, aversion and delusion. The whole world is being consumed with those three things. Again, I don't think it takes a great stretch of the imagination to look around at the current world and see things haven't really changed a lot. You know, that reference I made on the first night, you know, the only thing we learn from history is we don't learn anything from history in this instance. That Those dimensions haven't really changed in the big picture. But the thing that we can do is begin to understand our psychology which is arising from our own fires of greed aversion and delusion to see how the quality of our consciousness is coloured by these things literally the word for example in Pālī and Sanskrit for passion is a word called raga. Some of you might be familiar with this because this is what's the title of pieces in Indian classical music are called ragas. And it's the same derivation, it's the same meaning. Um, An instrumentalist in Indian classical music is attempting to colour your mind. (laughs) That's what they're trying to do. Attempting to colour your mind with an emotion, a powerful emotion. And that is what passion is. It's a colouring of consciousness with a powerful emotion so that our mind becomes suffused with that emotion. Now, what can occur artistically in the performance of a piece of music or the reading of a piece of poetry in, in Sanskrit or something like this is quite, quite different from what arises in the passion of the moment when our mind is completely coloured and dominated by one emotion. Now, I can almost say what I said last night. Why am I telling you all this? The why I'm telling you all this is because if we are to, for example, bring metta into our lives, then we have to see what room it has and what qualities of consciousness are arising in our ordinary daily situations. I mentioned very briefly this afternoon, I think it was, in introducing the the meditation this afternoon, that, for example, when there are things like envy and conceit and jealousy and anger, and these are just a few examples, when there are these present in the mind, there is no room for metta. There is no room for it. To have metta present would almost be to have something contradictory in the mind present. Now, metta in the tradition is very much spoken as, you know, I said, loba, dosa, moha. It's three really easy Pali words, really easy ones to remember. Yeah. Dosa, dosa is greed, sorry, dosa is aversion. And to actually speak about metta, we're talking about something called adosa. Non aversion, implying love. So it can only be present in our minds when there is non aversion arising, non hatred arising. So, in our ordinary daily lives, and what I consider to be be doing in a way in a week like this is something rather artificial. It has a very beneficial dimension to it, but it's artificial. It's attempting to develop qualities of mind, to cultivate in this true sense. I've been talking about Bhavana ever since the first evening. Attempting to cultivate, attempting to imaginatively construct, to even evoke the feelings of metta. We've only been doing it towards ourselves, and we'll be continuing to extend this over the next few days. And then moving into compassion and joy towards the end of the week. However, none of this makes any sense, of course, unless you find it present or look at the quality of the mind in daily activity and see what room there is to bring metta. Now, in a way, metta can only come into our ordinary daily activities if there is something else which is present as well another wholesome mental factor this is the development of something most of you will know because it's really kind of of hit the headlines almost at the moment becoming very mainstream which is mindfulness this is a translation of the Pali word sati sati which means to recollect, to remember remember to recall, to bring to mind, initially in simple awareness, what you're doing, what you're engaging in, what is the quality of mind in a given situation. Now, there is a difference, let me put it qualitatively, there's a very great big difference qualitatively between being angry and in a sense, slightly stepping back and being mindful that you're angry. I don't know if you see that. It's almost like a stepping back from it. Now, sometimes we get that arising naturally. Stepping back, I'm giving you a very strong one, very powerful one. Sometimes because there isn't very little, there's very little room for this factor of sati, of mindfulness to be present in this because the power, let's use the word the raga, the passion of it is so powerful that you're just there in the anger. But for example, in the mindfulness of the growing of irritation, the mindfulness of the growing of envy, of conceit. It's very interesting actually, I was reading a text earlier on And the Buddha says, conceit, it's just a madness. (sighs) Conceit is just a madness. Feeling better than, feeling worse than, feeling the same as. In any of these, we are placing ourselves above, below, or the same as others. But we can become mindful of that activity. To bring mindfulness to bear. There's a term that's often used in the tradition, which is a nice Pali term. It's sampajanya, which is sati, mindfulness, and understanding. So sati coupled with mindfulness. The two are almost synonymous of actually understanding what is going on. Now, it's only with understanding what's going on, with the recognition, with the recollection, the seeing clearly of your mental states in any particular situation. Now, obviously, in the artificial situation of what I'm calling these, you know, sitting on cushions or walking in the grounds or walking in the meditation, in the the walking hall, wherever it is, to be actually aware of what is going on. This is the very simple message behind it. And the question, in a sense, that can always become a mantra for you. you know, I often pose this to groups and say, actually, your mantra for the week is what is going on. Because we are actually clueless, often, about what is going on. We'll know the gross mental state because we are reacting, coming back to that reactiveness. And remember, there is no freedom in that reactiveness. If there is the desirable object, I'm salivating for it. If there is the undesirable object, I'm trying to run away from it as fast as possible. This is almost like catching yourself in the act. What is actually going on in any given situation? Now, this is particularly important in our interpersonal relationships, I mean, it's so obvious, it really almost doesn't need saying that it it's so obvious that if we are simply reacting in our interpersonal relationships with those that are close to us, with those that are more distant, with those that we work with, and so on and so forth, you know, there is no real relationship. We don't really see the other. In these reactivities, there is not a real seeing of the other. In a sense, there is no, and let's put it as a very tall thing here, a very large thing, which is there is no respect in this. There's no respectfulness of the other. This is irrespective of whether you like them or not. Now, most of what the Viharas are about is changing the quality of our relationship with others. I often joke about this in context of... Whenever I talk about Buddhism, you know, Buddhism should come with a government health warning. It could seriously change your life. You know, because it's going to affect your relationships with others remember i was saying today caring for self caring for other caring for other caring for self because we're not islands we are not separate from one another everything we do say think has a, an effect has an effect on the other we might not see it when we're in a rage When we're in a temple, we do not see, in a sense, as we do so clearly, of course, when we throw a pebble into the pond, we don't see the ripple spreading out. When we throw throw a pebble here, which is the pebble of action, both body, speech and mind, into the well of being, we don't see how it ramifies out. We have very little awareness of it. We might see its immediate effect, but we don't necessarily see its further repercussions at all. Hence another reason for mindfulness. And hence a reason to change from these reactive patterns to responsive patterns. Now, responsive patterns are patterns built on things like meta affection. Remember from the Metta Sutta that I read out this morning, there is no nobler way to live in this world. The Buddha is, as I said, and I tried to back that up with a further reading this afternoon from another early text, that this is not an optional extra on the path. This is an essential quality. One, unfortunately, even the tradition tends to often pay lip service to and really focus on this wisdom tradition, this tradition of actually intellect, a lot of it. The Buddha was a practical thinker. He was not, in our terms, an intellectual. He was a very great practical thinker. Somebody who was talking about human relationships. He was extremely radical. His radicality is often being diffused by the traditions over the centuries because he's talking about living with things like radical contingency radical, the radicality of change all around us you know, how to move into this radically different dimension of living with others and actually overcoming and I joke about it here overcoming the fact that others are not out there just simply to irritate you yeah. that to move into a different relationship with others a relationship which is actually built on things like meta, And I'll just stick with metta this evening you know, to kind of drill all this to a conclusion. Because metta also has a connotation of adhesion. Whereas states like dosa and loba and moha and that have a sense of breaking and rupturing Pulling apart of things, then metta in the original language, in the language of Pali and Sanskrit, its Sanskrit equivalent, has the quality of adhesion, of bringing together. So metta is which draws us together. And its opposite, its great opposite, of course, aversion, dosa, is which drives us apart, that which pushes us apart. So, in developing on the path, in developing a sane way of living in this world, if we don't want to suffer the existential crises that actually are prevalent, and all too prevalent in the Western world these days, the dimensions of things like loneliness, well, why do we feel lonely? It tells us something existentially, doesn't it, if we feel lonely, that we were meant to be with. In other words, existentially, at the heart of our being, is a sense of being with. And actually, even in the Sanskrit, the word compassion, karuna, has much more a sense of being with others. A being for others as well so it has this quality of adhesion of drawing together whereas I say just to reiterate the other aspects the more negative aspects which are based on these things of loba, dosa, moha are that which drive us apart into our loneliness into our despair often and into much more depressive tendencies When we don't feel this quality of being with others. So hence the necessity of developing these qualities in our lives. Beginning to catch glimpses of the what is going on. The qualities of mind which are brought to any individual situation. Not with a desire to beat yourself up. Let's make this very clear. This is not to hit yourself over the head and say I'm a bad person every time I find myself in a reactive situation. But it's to find yourself in those situations mindfully because the moment you bring the quality of sati into that, it changes. It's subtly changed. It's no longer quite the same anger, quite the same irritation, the moment you've brought that to it. And with that, of course, then can follow in on the back of it things like metta, like compassion, as opposed to being stuck, and going round and round in circles of just this being entrapped within the familiar I'm not implying it's easy it does take energy and effort and the desire to want to step into the unknown into those unknown regions which I have termed these three things the title of this week the affection the compassion and the joy we've got to want to step out And even when we want to step out into these more unknown regions, these more unexplored regions, it's not easy because there is the tug and the pull and the bind of the familiar and the lack of understanding of who and what we are and what we are not. And that's important as well, to begin to understand what we are not. If these things are to arise such as sati, the mindfulness and the awareness, and of course the metta and the karuna and the mudita that can follow in on the back of that awareness. So, even in the practice, in the practice that we did yesterday, which was this movement between observation of the breath and the what is going on, between today, which is probably the same movement for you, perhaps perhaps not as dominant because there's much more of an ability often when you've got words to concentrate on them. However, there's probably still going to, just drifting backwards and forwards. So that's important. Don't think of the, you know, oh, I'm weighing thought, and I now I'm aware of thought. That is quite different like being angry to becoming aware of anger. Non-judgmentally. It's very, very important to say, of course, and I really want to emphasize this, this is, you know, emphasizing these elements of our problem is not to say that we're bad people. This is not to say that we're bad people, but that we're just very unskillful, mostly, in the way that we direct our attention, that we direct our awareness. Now, I use that, and I'm going to kind of draw this to a conclusion, because... This directing of our attention skillfully or unskillfully is what is going on all the time. Again, like most of these things, there is Pali terms for them. There is what's called wise attention, and there is what is much more familiar, which is unwise attention. You know, we're caught in the unwise attention a lot of the time. For example, unwise attention is that demand from that which something that of something which cannot deliver it to you, like the bone that's offered to the dog to deliver some kind of delicious, nutritious meal for you, when it can never do that. This is very much the nature of unwise attention. Wise attention is directing and seeing the nature of it that it cannot deliver that. And seeing How to redirect your attention to that which can. Now, the development of metta, what we're doing, even in this kind of very rudimentary fashion of beginning to develop metta towards ourselves, is the development of a form of wise attention, of beginning to hold ourselves differently. Now, just in conclusion, Just to finish this off. This freedom from the known is the courage to move from the one to the other. From the unwise attention to the wise attention. And I just want to finish off on a quote which I think isn't Buddhist. It's not Buddhist at all. In fact, it's from a text most of you will probably have heard of, if not read, called the Bhagavad Gita and it's a very mixed text but this is a wonderful saying this particular one and I think this makes it very clear because Krishna says to Arjuna if you want to see the heroic look at those who can love if you want to see the brave look at those who can forgive Freedom from the known into these unknown regions of love and forgiveness and compassion and that require courage and bravery. Because the tendency, if I'm using more Christian terminology, is because it is so known and it is so familiar, the tendency is to fall. Because of one other characteristic, which is also another negative characteristic that we have, which can be antidoted which we can have a direct antidote applied to it, which is laziness. We fall into the familiar because of fear and laziness. And the antidote to that, of course, in some senses, is courage and trust and energy to develop on the path. And I'll shut up now. I'll pick up some of the themes again from this evening and develop them further in a slightly different direction tomorrow night. So this really opens it up for if there are questions or comments. If there be questions. Well, traditionally, I mean, it's very interesting that um, it's often, you can see within commentarial text, they say, for example, if you want to develop calm, if you want to develop concentration, then sitting practice is absolutely essential. Formal, sitting down, doing the same thing again and again, looking at the mind, keep bringing it back to an object, that becomes absolutely essential. With the development of what we can loosely call insight and some of the things I've been talking about this, in, this evening and actually in a way when I'm talking about meta and insight I'm not really separating the two here because I'm actually seeing you know, in order to apply meta you've got to have a degree of insight in order to actually see what's going on so I can apply meta, has to have a degree of insight. It's a mix. There's no good sitting on a cushion and observing it if you don't do it in daily life. Yeah. So, some, you know, I personally think that sitting practice is essential, but it doesn't end there and it can't end there. Otherwise, it makes no sense. If I want to get calm and concentrate, yeah, of course, it makes complete sense just to sit on the cushion and try and do it. Hopefully, you can take it out into life if you get it. But in a way, from a Buddhist perspective, nothing hangs on simply being concentrated because actually, um, this is what was going on in Indian society anyway. Loads of people were getting concentrated but they still ended up having all the same problems the moment they came out of concentration. (laughs) But if you want that nice state, and it is a very nice state, then do it sitting on a cushion. But if you want to really develop the real insight, and as I say, I don't divorce um, kindness and compassion and joy and all that from insight here, then it has to be a mix of both. I think that in order to observe the quality of mind, um, it's very important to do a practice on a regular basis. Because in a way, this is your laboratory. <laughs> you know, you see what's going on in a, in a kind of almost artificial, as I said, condition. And that you can see it, and you can give yourself the time to see it. Um, because actually, in ordinary life, everything is happening so fast... Now, I don't know if it's happening for anybody here, but the tendency on a retreat is gradually that you start to slow down a bit. You know, things don't come quite as quickly. You know, they're still happening quickly, but they're not quite as quickly as they are in daily life, because not so much is being thrown at you. Um, so in these kind of more formal sitting re- you know, retreat situations, or even just sitting at home on a regular daily basis, you get a chance to examine what's going on in this artificial condition. So that hopefully you can take some of that out into daily life and begin to observe it on occasion. I wouldn't say always, because there's always going to be failure. You know, observe it in those ordinary life situations. And actually, as I say, that's only what, that's the only place it really makes sense. Ultimately, is in life situations. No good. As a, I could sit up here, and we could all sit here, feeling terribly good, talking about meta, thinking about meta, and go about out and just be just as unkind. You know. Meta is to be found in daily life. That's where it's to be found and to be applied. And you can only apply it when you see the quality of your mind. The training in beginning to discover those qualities of mind can take place on the cushion and they're a transferable skill, in a way, of taking it out. So my answer is a bit of both. It's necessary, I think, to have a regular established practice. yes yeah. yes I mean, I mean you see I think people do themselves a disservice when you say lost in thought but sometimes actually knowing that I'm thinking knowing that there's a degree of chaos going on or that there's a, a thought rising here and there's a thought rising that is actually the process a lot. Of, I think if you had a quick survey I'm not going to do it if you had a quick survey of a lot of people in this room that would be a lot of people's experience actually a, a majority of the time would be kind of lost in thought But the moment, for example, it goes, oh, there I am instead of here with the breath. That's when the process is beginning to be less confused. Now, that might only happen a few times in your mind. It might happen lots for some people, but it might only happen a few times. But that becomes insight. That becomes non-judgmental awareness. That becomes a simple awareness I've spoken about. So let's not do ourselves a disservice because I think, again, I think it becomes meditation becomes another stick to go over the head with, you know. We can't do it, it's too difficult, I'm lost in thought and all the things that we tell ourselves, the stories that we tell ourselves. Um, Just engaging in the process is enough, I think, a lot of times, as long as you're bringing effort to it. That's all.
1: by um, our our versions um, but it still seems to me to have an important heart quality Mm -hmm. because otherwise you can't you can't really have metal without that Mm -hmm. but it's distinguishing because people sometimes think they're being kind when in fact they're just playing out their own number so you have to somehow find what is the
0: true heart quality, not the one that's been coloured by mm-hmm. your desires and aversions? Yeah. Well, it's this difficult. I mean, the, the enemy of genuine meta is attachment. That's the enemy of it, because it's that cloying attachment. Yeah. Because attachment also has the same quality I've described about metta, which is metta brings close It has that adhesive quality to it. So, in order to still feel it as a hard quality, but to distinguish it from that, there has to be a, a certain degree of seeing clearly what you're calling dispassion about it. Otherwise, it can end up slipping so easily into just this sentimentality, this attachment. Eros, actually, sometimes, if it's somebody close to you. For example, a partner, and it's distinct from all of those qualities. So, I mean, in a way, I don't, um, I don't apologise for making it sound slightly dispassionate. Although it's not, I totally agree with you. It's a really heartfelt quality. It's a really heartfelt thing. And actually, when we're developing it towards ourselves, I mean, I actually use the phrase today. This should be coming from the heart. We should be feeling this from the heart. You know, I say should be. You know, that's the attempt that we're trying to make. Um, but we do have to keep it distinct from these other things, because otherwise it slips so easily. And then we mistake it. We think we're having meta, and actually we're just having attachment. That's all. But it's a very powerful thing. It's a very, very powerful thing. And I think at this stage in time, just to see it just a little bit dispassionately, and see, for example, where we can apply it, where we can't apply it, to know the quality of mind, not to kid ourselves, is actually quite important. Hence, perhaps it sounds a bit more dispassionate than it actually is. Yeah, that's, that's.
1: Can I just say, I keep thinking of um, Nelson Mandela. I saw him on television at his 90th birthday in Hyde Park, and he mm. the speech. And it occurred to me he's probably the most loved man in the world. Mm. And in a way, he um, epitomises those qualities, mm. I think.
0: Hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. Which is
0: why he's so dearly loved by everybody. Yes, I think I think that's probably true. I mean certainly a great deal comes off him and you see this with lots of people who have similar qualities. I mean when I was with the Dalai Lama quite recently, Oxford, as I mentioned last night, I mean exactly the same. I mean he came in, gave a talk for about an hour, he said very little really in his talk as he often does unless he's giving direct teachings because it was a general talk and he got a kind of 10 minute standing ovation from everybody because it was simply his presence you know that that genuine caring presence and connectedness with people which i think um you know is is the same quality that mandela has as well